Amen. Well, great to see you today. Good to welcome those of you who are online and those of you who are here in-house. Today is the first of two overviews of Luke and Acts. We have been journeying together with this amazing New Testament writer through the story of Jesus and then the story of the early church. And when you, when you read that, that whole story from the point of view of asking this question, who are the main characters, perhaps you think Mary, maybe you think Paul, Peter, maybe one of the luminaries of the narrative. But of course, everyone would undoubtedly say that Jesus is the principal character, both of the gospel and of the Acts of the Apostles. But there is another character, a character who is of equal significance because he is of equal importance within the mystery that is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see within the very fabric of this narrative the other main character. Of course, Jesus is a principal character. But the, the co-star, the one who, without whom the story would be listless and lifeless, is the Holy Spirit himself. From the very beginning, the first chapter all the way through to the last mention of the good news by Paul in Acts 28, we see this character portrayed over and over. And as we look at him as a principal character in the narrative of God, we come to a deeper understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God. Because, of course, it's the Holy Spirit that, by his presence and power, makes that connection possible. The connection is made possible by Jesus, but the connection is made by the Spirit. And so the Spirit is going to be the subject of our overview this morning. Paul, one of the principal characters within the human narrative of the text, of course, reveals many ways in which the Spirit is at work. And one of those churches that he planted and visited on numerous occasions during the story of the Acts of the Apostles is the church in Corinth. And to that church... He writes these words, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And of course, wherever power is mentioned by Paul or any other member of the the New Testament writing uh, corpus, we, of course, are referencing the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom that Jesus reveals as the king is made manifest by the person of the Spirit as he reveals his presence and power, both in the life of Jesus and in the ministry and work of Jesus and his followers. That, by the way, was um, 1 Corinthians 4 
and verse 20. I'm going to be referencing various different parts of Luke and Acts as I go through uh, the message this morning, and for that reason, perhaps we won't be able to follow quite so closely with the, with the passages on the screen. So maybe note them down, take your, your phone out and just take a few notes. Maybe if you have a Bible app, you can follow me much more quickly than it might be possible if we're asking people to be putting slides up on the screen. So let's go to the very beginning of the gospel, and let's, let's just ask ourselves, where does the Holy Spirit really first emerge in the conversation of heaven with earth. Well, of course, we have Mary, this young woman, not expecting the visitation of one of the dignitaries of heaven. But nevertheless, Gabriel turns up and hails her with a sense of nobility and bearing, immediately confusing her And perhaps the confusion is setting aside her initial fear at meeting this angelic being. She hears of what it is that God has planned for her. She questions, how can this be since I'm a virgin? How can I give birth to the Son of God, to the King of Israel? And Gabriel says this. He uses a particular word, used only twice in the New Testament, both by Luke. He says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Will overshadow you. Giving a picture, even in the, in the stating of such a word, you can, you can almost feel the resonance back to the very first verses of the Bible where the Spirit is brooding, hovering over the waters of chaos, awaiting the word of the Father to bring order in the midst of this chaotic scene. The same Spirit brooding over the anticipation of the Son to be born, now envelops. That's the other way in which you would translate this particular Greek word. The Spirit envelops Mary and brings to birth something that would otherwise be impossible. But as Gabriel says, with God, all things are possible. The other place where it occurs is in, is in Luke chapter 9. Jesus with Peter, James, and John is on a prayer retreat. They've been to Caesarea Philippi. They've heard Peter make his great affirmation and acclamation that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but the Son of God. They've heard the conversation between the two of them. They've recognized what it is that Jesus is attempting to reveal, but they're not at all sure of of what it is, is the content of this revelation. And so Jesus takes the leaders of the 12 with him, and they climb a mountain thought by many Bible expositors to be Mount Nebo, not far from Nazareth and his home there in northern Galilee. And there on top of the mountain, Jesus is transfigured as he prays. His clothing becomes as bright as lightning. He himself becomes so luminous that it's like looking at the sun at midday. 
figures appear. Moses and Elijah. And then a cloud. A cloud that is reminiscent of the glory cloud that covered the temple, first in the desert and then in Jerusalem. The glory cloud comes down upon the mountain and the word is envelops them. The cloud envelops them. The cloud that signifies the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit envelops them. And something is born in them that is not clarified until later, but nevertheless, just as Mary is enveloped by the Holy Spirit, discovers that she has born into her, conceived within her, something that she will take a long time to understand. So Peter, James, and John have the same experience. James, of course, dies early on in the narrative at the hands of Herod. But Peter and John continue. Peter, in his second letter, just before his death, when he's crucified upside down outside the walls of Rome, speaks about the different things that he's experienced and only identifies one experience during the ministry of Jesus that as he considers his death is left like a retinal flare when you look at the sun. He says, we beheld his glory, his majesty, when we were there on the sacred mountain. You'd think he would mention the feeding of the 5,000, the resurrection, the crucifixion, the day of Pentecost. No. This is such a moment when he's enveloped by the Holy Spirit that it marks him for always. John, who is perhaps the last of the disciples to be living at the end of the first century, is writing his letters to the churches of Asia Minor, gathering the material from the revelation that he received from Jesus on the island of Patmos as he writes down the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of John, writes in his gospel something that somehow echoes what it was that he experienced there on the Mount of Transfiguration. The cloud covers them. And the Father says the same thing to the disciples that he has said to his son at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. I'm so proud of him. And then he adds one other word. He says to Peter, James, and John, he says, listen to him. Listen to him. Perhaps it took the entirety of John's life reflecting upon what it was that the Father encouraged him to do for him to be in the place where he received the revelation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the Word. Of course you listen to him. 
He's the word. Of course you attend to him. He's the word become flesh. Of course you want to receive all that he communicates. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came from Jesus. And from his grace, we received grace upon grace. What a word. What a word that is. And so the Holy Spirit is there at the very beginning, there in the midst of the narrative, there throughout the story, and he is doing something that is enormously important that we have to attend to today. The Holy Spirit is making manifest what God wants to do. He's making manifest what God wants to do. The kingdom is about power. It's not about words. It's about the manifestation of God's power in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is longing to make manifest the the presence of the King. He's he's longing to make manifest the presence of of what it is that the king is wanting to do, what the, what the king is up to right now. As we move on through Luke's narrative, we, we see Jesus declaring quite clearly that because he has now received the impartation of the Spirit at his baptism, and that impartation has been fully authenticated, tested and tried in the desert, He goes into the desert full of the Spirit. He comes out of the desert, Luke 4.14, full of the power of the Spirit. Now the power is to be made manifest. He picks up the scroll in the synagogue. He opens it to Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit of the living God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free. The Spirit is the means by which the kingdom is declared and demonstrated. The declaration and the demonstration of the kingdom is entirely dependent upon the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, those of you who've done some reading, those of you who've done some reflecting about the meaning and the the purpose of the kingdom of God will be aware of this idea of inauguration and consummation. There have been some teachers down through the years who have mistakenly believed that the Holy Spirit is fully realized here in our experience. Whereas Jesus makes it quite clear that right now it's the, it's the very beginning, it's the planting of a seed, it's the, the beginning of a process, it's the, it's the yeast within the dough, not yet fully risen, but nevertheless really present, really here. And so there's been this language of consummation when Jesus returns, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and when we populate that new heaven and a new earth in the new bodies that God gives us. And that that kingdom consummated is inaugurated by Jesus as he declares his manifesto of the kingdom, identifying himself as the king 
at the very center of the kingdom. But what this has done sometimes has caused us to not look for a greater measure of God's presence among us because it's always by and by. It's always some other place, some other time. But what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on today is, of course, an understanding that there is no full consummation until Jesus returns in power and glory. But what you receive today is the manifestation of the real thing. It's not a partial experience. Let me put it this way. When you experience the love of God, is it a partial experience of his love? Or is it his love? When you experience forgiveness, is it partial forgiveness? Or is it forgiveness? Of course, it's complete. It's final and full. And so, although we may not be able to experience all the depth and breadth and height and length of what it means, it's the real thing. So this is tremendously important as we think about the narrative of the Holy Spirit through Luke and Acts. When you go to chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, it's very interesting to read what it is that we see there, right there at the, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, detailed and recorded by by Luke. It says in verse 17 of, of Luke chapter 6, he went down, Jesus went down with the disciples and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and all the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Power was coming from him and healing them all. And you say, well, phew, maybe one day. Well, they didn't have to wait very long the first disciples, because just a couple of years later, as the people begin to gather in Jerusalem to hear the apostles' testimony, in Luke 5, 15, it says, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented with evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The idea of an inaugurated kingdom means that, of course, there is something that is greater 
a greater and more extensive expression than what it is that we currently experience. But what this has done, I think, especially in the minds of the average evangelical, is to cause us to think that longing is the main task of a Christian. Longing. Whereas I think Jesus says this, it's looking, not longing. When he brings to a summary his teaching on the kingdom, he says, seek first the kingdom. Look for it. Be looking for it. Obviously, if you're looking for it, you're expecting to find it. And then later on when he speaks about prayer, he says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It's a fascinating thing to me that so often we're longing, but we're not looking. I can remember working in the inner city amongst the underprivileged and under-resourced of London and meeting with other clergy in the area. And it was interesting for me to meet those who, for no fault of their own, had been beaten down by the circumstances. One dear brother came and shared with me one day. He said, I'd like you to pray with me for revival. And I said, of course, let's do that. He said, I've been praying for revival for 35 years. And my church has been getting smaller every year. And then he gave the explanation that, of course, all of the social ills and the difficulties of the people that he's working with meant that he couldn't expect any significant move unless God brought revival. It was just around that time that God began to teach me about people of peace. Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends out the 12 and then the 72. And he says, if a person of peace is there, they will welcome you and take care of you. So I was in an identical situation to him. And this young boy next door would call out to me every day that I was mowing the lawn. I found him incredibly frustrating and annoying. But eventually, I deigned to have a conversation with him. And he almost immediately became a Christian. And so I looked at that and thought, well, isn't that revival? And then when I diffidently went to his home and spoke to his atheist parents, members of the IRA, who were committed to violence and saw them become followers of Jesus and then their whole family, I thought to myself, do I need to get them to pray for revival? 
Or has revival been made manifest in their lives? You see, I can be longing for revival and not looking for what the Holy Spirit's doing. I can be longing for God to do something and not be looking for the people who are saying with a big neon light above them, it's me. I can be longing for God to step in and do something amazing when there are people around me all the time who are just ready and available for an amazing thing to happen. It's good to long for the consummation of the kingdom. It's a good thing. But not if it replaces our capacity to look. Be looking and longing. If you move on in the narrative, you get to Luke chapter 8. Jesus has just got off the boat He's returned to his hometown, his new hometown of Capernaum, where he lives in the home of Peter and Andrew. And, of course, they've seen all kinds of amazing things in their home. People lowered through the roof, crowds of people gathering in, pressing in on Jesus just to hear what it is that he's he's wanting to say. And as they get out of the boat, the crowds begin to gather. And a man who is one of the principal dignitaries of The city comes to them, desperate for his young 12-year-old daughter to be healed. But along the way, the Holy Spirit begins to do something. A woman who, for the same length of time that the child has been alive, 12 years, has been suffering with internal hemorrhaging that has made her socially unacceptable and religiously unclean, is in the crowd, hoping that nobody notices that she's there. Perhaps she ducks down and on hands and knees makes her way between the legs of the people until she finds Jesus. Because she says to herself, if I only touch the hem of his robe, I'll be healed. She does that and immediately knows in her body that she has been made whole. And Jesus pauses. And Peter's saying, "Uh, Jairus? Yeah, but somebody touched me. Lord, seriously? It's like 200 people trying to touch you right now. What are you talking about? No, somebody touched me for healing because I felt power go out from me. I felt power go out from me. Luke 8, 46. He felt power go out from him. Jesus wasn't in charge of the power. The power was simply finding in him a perfect conduit through which he could flow. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus didn't know until that point. I felt power go out from me. Peter, later on in the narrative in in Acts 10, has not exactly kicking and screaming been dragged into the home of the centurion Cornelius, but, you know, it's been necessary to give him some fairly fundamental revelation. There's a, there's a sheet that's been lowered from heaven with snakes and reptiles and all kinds of unclean creatures in it, and God's saying from heaven, get up and kill, and he's going, oh, no, Lord, you know, I'm a very good Jewish person. I would never do that. And it has to happen three times. So that Peter begins to have the necessary mental adjustment for him to be able to look in the right direction and see that maybe people among whom he would never expect God to be working might be working. You see, one of the reasons that we're not looking is that we're not expecting God to be doing stuff in people that we don't like. Or people that we don't approve of. Or people who are naughty or bad or wicked. Or who don't agree with our political perspective or, you know, blah, blah, blah. He has to have the mental readjustment. And then some people come and say, could you come to the home of this, um, this centurion? He's obviously, you know, not Jewish and... But he's, he's met an angel, and the angel told him to send for you. Okay. Off he goes. Now, I don't know about you, but if it were me, I'd be thinking, now what's the best gospel for a Gentile, you think? I need to tell him about Jesus. Yeah, I need to tell him about all the things that Jesus did. And then I need to tell him about the cross and the resurrection. And then I, I need to talk to him about, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll have to get them baptized. I mean, it may take a long time. I don't know how long it's going to take. So he gets to the home of Cornelius, and sure enough, everybody's there. The whole household's there. Maybe a maybe hundred people are gathered. This is a wealthy person's home. They have an open courtyard, no doubt, in the center of the, in the, center of the, the home, and people have gathered in, and, and Peter begins to preach, and he's got this great sermon. We know he's good at preaching. I mean, we've, we've seen Acts chapter 2. It's like the definitive sermon of the Christian church. I mean, he's an amazing preacher. And he can craft stories and illustrations into the narrative. And right in the middle of it, the Holy Spirit falls on the crowd, and they all begin speaking in tongues. And he must be thinking, wait, I've not got to that bit yet. In fact, I don't know whether I've given you the full gospel yet. You see, we can spend our time waiting and miss the opportunity to witness what it is that God's doing. We can spend our time waiting for God to do something. And miss the opportunity to witness what he's doing. He's working over there amongst those people. He's working back there amongst those people who, you know, 
wouldn't probably get a seat in the house. You can be waiting all you like, or you can find yourself to be one who, because you've decided to not just long, but look, you can be one who's not just waiting, but witnessing what it is that God's doing. What an amazing thing that's going to be. And when you do that, it's not like it's a partial thing that God does. It's not like it's an insignificant thing that God does. Yes, it may not be the fully orbed expression of his kingdom that we'll see when Jesus returns. But say, say you're walking through, you're walking through the Rockies and you find a gold nugget. And in finding that gold nugget, you've identified a source of gold. Yeah? Just because you haven't got the gold mine doesn't mean you haven't got the gold. It's real gold. It's the real thing. So often, we focus on all of the necessary provisions to start digging the mine when the mine has been revealed to us. And we miss the opportunity to find the gold that's all over the place. There's gold everywhere. If only we'll look and witness to what it is that God's doing. As you, of course, continue, you see that Jesus gives a word to the disciples after his resurrection. And that word to them, of course, is enormously important for them in preparation for what it is that they will be as his representatives, as his partners in the mission that up until now he's been conducting as the principal agent of. But now, he, the agent, the recipient of the power of the Holy Spirit, will extend his identity to them so that his kingship is given to them. He puts it this way in chapter 22 of Luke's gospel. He says, all of you will have thrones and all of you will rule and all of you will judge in the coming kingdom. You will be those who receive my identity, in other words. And of course, as we see the unfolding of this message throughout the New Testament, we understand that all of us have the identity of the Son of God. All of us have the position, the posture, the place within the Father's heart of his beloved and only Son. There is no one in the universe that is loved more than you. God loves you, and he can't love you anymore because he loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus. And the identity of Jesus has been extended to you so that that you are fully representatives of his kingship and power. And Jesus says this in chapter 24 of Luke, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed 
with power from on high. So, how do we begin to put this together? Well, we put it together by looking at the lives of the early disciples. Because they're like you and me, broken, incomplete, not fully rounded, not tightly wrapped individuals. They've got all the same stuff that we have. If Jesus knew all of the temptations that we know, then we're certain that the early church had those same temptations, difficulties, and frailties. Paul, on one occasion, is in Corinth. He's there beginning to see a breakthrough as he's been looking and witnessing to what it is that God is up to. And there's life beginning to be generated in the families of the people that he's sharing the good news with. And the spirit is beginning to break out. The spirit that will be such a significant identifier of this early church in Corinth. But the opposition is mounting. The difficulties are growing. And the fear in Paul's heart is very real. He's been, he's been stoned almost to death. He's been beaten and broken. He's been harried and harassed. He's been, he's been chased from place to place. In Acts 18, Jesus comes to him in the night and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm still working here. I have lots of people. Our fear, our, our sense of what might go wrong, our feelings of what might not be available by way of resources, our feelings of scarcity and anxiety so often get us to look within where we only foster and grow our fears. Jesus comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. Look out on the city. Witness what I'm doing in the city. I have many, many people here. The Spirit is present within every believer. Every person in this room or online, he's present. He's present in the full measure of the power of the resurrection. And that power can be made manifest with our cooperation. Occasionally the Lord will override, but he will not do it often, and he will not do it regularly. He looks for partnership. And so this is what he says to Paul as Paul wrestles through these issues as he thinks again about the church in Corinth. And the Lord says to him, Paul, my grace is enough for you. Because in the midst of your feelings of frustration, in your weakness, in your waiting, in your longing, 
my power is made complete. And we've looked at this before. The word complete, teleos, suggests that God has had a plan, a plan of partnership for humanity. And the means by which he will fulfill that plan of partnership is by his presence and power living in those people who have surrendered and submitted to him. But the way in which this side of glory, when we wait for the consummation, the way in which his power will be made manifest is in our weakness, not in our strength. And so you say, Lord, I'm just not very good at looking. Help me. Jesus says, ask, and you'll receive. Lord, I'm, I'm, not, very, I'm not very good at witnessing what it is that you're doing, because I'm, I'm always worrying about what it is that other people think of me. Well, seek, and you'll find. Lord, I mean, I feel so beset by frustration that I, I don't know I don't know how to experience the things that you're talking about. And Jesus says, knock, and the door will be open to you. Which of you parents whose child asks for bread, gives a stone, will not your heavenly Father not give you the Holy Spirit when you ask. Matthew, when he's recording Jesus saying that, perhaps on a different occasion, remarks that it, Jesus says, will not your Father give you good things? Luke, because of the emphasis and because of what it is that he's recalling and because of what it is that he's, he's recollecting through the eyewitness accounts that he's gathered so carefully, remembers that Jesus on another occasion, says the same words, except at the end. He says, will he not give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? So if we're going to watch, if we're going to be looking, if we're going to be witnessing, if we're going to be experiencing the Holy Spirit, then we need to begin someplace. What was it like for Jesus when he felt power go from him? What was that? Remember, he's a fully human human. So what he experienced, you can experience, and so can I. What did it feel like? What did it, what did it feel like to be Peter and people gathering in just the right spot so that, that your shadow touched him. What did that feel like? He's a human being. What did it feel like, again, to be present with Peter in the house of Cornelius? And as you're listening to the good news being, being presented to you, you don't even get to the big bit. And you find yourself overwhelmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit because you're just ready to receive whatever it is that God wants to give you. What was that like? 
What was it like for, what was it like for Paul to surrender his fear and find that in his weakness, God's power was completed? What did that feel like? So this is how we're going to finish today. We're going to ask the Lord to make manifest his presence.